This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed our last episode with former Yankees athletic trainer Gene Monahan. It's one of my personal favorite episodes of the ones I've done these last couple of years. I hope you have a chance to check it out. This week, I get to talk to the kind of person that I don't cross paths with too often. Tabitha Soren is someone I remember as an MTV news anchor in the early 1990s. She moved up to network news and then got out of the business at uh, still a pretty young age. She's married to author Michael Lewis, and Soren became a mom and a photographer. Her latest project brings her into my world, the baseball world. Her photo book, Fantasy Life, Baseball and the American Dream, is available now. It's published by Aperture. And that book features baseball photography, mainly chronicling 21 players from the Oakland A's draft class of 2002. Now, if you're wondering why those specific players, well, they were prominently mentioned in her husband's book, Moneyball. Yes, that Michael Lewis and that Moneyball. Soren began taking pictures of these guys in spring training in 2003, and she went with them on their journey, checking back every year to see where the baseball life had taken them. Some, like Nick Swisher, found fame and fortune, obviously a few years with the Yankees. Some, like Joe Blanton, still kicking around in the majors. The others found out what happens when you chase the dream and you never quite reach it, and that's kind of what the book's about. Uh, I caught up with Soren over the phone this week, and we talked about her journey with this book. And we even spoke a little about her former life in TV news. Here's Tabitha Soren on the latest 30 with Murdy. Tabitha, the first question I like to ask all my guests is what can you tell me about the first baseball game you ever went to? And I'm guessing, listen, I'm interested in your answer because you obviously moved around a lot when you were a kid, so I'm curious to where and when that actually was. Wow. Um, I can tell you one of the earliest ones, but I don't know if it was the very first one. My dad actually played baseball while I was growing up. He didn't have boys, so he would either coach a little league team or I think he also played in an adult baseball team. And I remember him sliding into second base or third base and dislocating his shoulder at some point as a child and that was totally creepy and awful but um seemed kind of silly as a grown-up to have a baseball injury unless you were a major league player (laughs) Um, but i he used to uh when we lived in las vegas he used to take us to disneyland but the trade-off was that we had to go see a padres game and usually he would schedule it around the red sox coming to play and we also saw Dodgers games out there. I do remember this really, at some point we went to batting practice and my dad got us, we had autograph books and we were getting signatures from all the players. And I got a signature from Davey Lopes. Wow. I, we had just moved into a new town and I wanted, I guess I wanted people to like me. So I went around telling everybody just because I had had this five second interaction with him that he was my cousin, but I didn't realize that he wasn't white. Like, I just didn't remember that part. <laughs> they were all like, oh, really? Really? Do you have a picture of you two together? And I was like, no, but you know, he is. And anyway, I'm, you know, it's kind of mortifying what you do as a kid to try to make friends, but I dined out on him. 
Ah, uh, that's funny. Uh, have you ever run into him since and gotten to tell him that? <laughs> so I'm curious now, um, your husband, Michael Lewis, wrote Moneyball. It was published in 2003. How did we get from there to what your book is? It's called Fantasy Life, Baseball on the American Dream, Photographs by Tabitha Sorn. Well, uh, there's no way I would have ended up at spring training in 2003 without him, my husband, he, the book had been fully, Moneyball had been fully reported, and um, it wasn't published yet, but Michael, I guess, was kind of not looking forward to not being able to hang out with Billy Bean all the time. Hmm. So he dragged me to spring training with our three-year-old daughter, and um, I brought all my camera equipment because I was really starting to see whether or not I wanted to look at photography as a vocation instead of just a hobby. And when I met these players who were just at their very first spring training, it was the draft class of 2002, but of course that was the spring training itself was in 2003, I thought, my goodness, you know, how often as an artist do you get to meet a whole group of guys who are all starting out on the same venture, the same um they're in the same place at the exact same time, and everybody's fortunes are going to turn out differently. So I thought I really just couldn't resist the photo project, even though I didn't have that great of an interest in baseball itself. Did you realize at the time that this was going to be something that was going to be you know, a, a decade-long <laughs> no project way. or longer? No way. No, <laughs> no. But it just required that. It got more interesting as things got harder for these players. I mean, it was great to meet them when they were so full of hope and purpose at the beginning, but I was also interested in watching them lose the thing that had given their life meaning for all these years. I mean, these are people, as you know, who are stars of their little league team and then stars of their high school team and then stars of their college team. Yeah. One guy won the Johnny Bench Award. Um, and they were all auditioning for places every single solitary night. So they went from being stars and being, you know, big fishes in small ponds to having to prove themselves every night. And the precarity or the precariousness of this career of having to, you know, strive for self-perfection every single game um, really captivated me. I, I could relate to that on some level. And I, I think that it's a very American thing to push yourself and strive for greatness in the way these athletes do. And I think it made for very good pictures. So that's that's when I thought about it in terms of a book. I thought that I was going to need to stick around until they were no longer baseball stars, but they were trying to reinvent themselves. And that was going to take time. So um, I was very happy that Aperture thought it would make a good book too. So how often did you end up contacting these guys or uh, keeping track of them during the course I of the years? I did not follow them around all season. I have three children and yeah. you know other projects that I've been working on, but I probably checked in with all 21 of them maybe once a year, twice a year when they were all at the spring trip for the same spring training, when they were all at the same spring training, it was much easier to make sure I had every single one. Mm -hmm. But what I would do is get their schedule during the summer and just line up a two-week road trip and, you know, shoot someone different every single night. I also would have, would wait for, you know, Nick Swisher with the Yankees to come to Oakland Coliseum mm -hmm. or Joe Blanton to come over and play somebody uh, in my local vicinity. So that 
that was a way to save money and time as well. So as this project is starting out for you in 2003 and, and then the book comes out, I mean, did you guys, did either you or Michael have any idea as Moneyball came out what it was going to become where the title itself became a word that described this entire philosophy and became this just this huge thing throughout baseball? I think Michael was uh, aware that it was going to be uh, a little bit controversial with the scouts, but um, I don't think he thought it was going to ignite the entire you know business world as well as you know generate a movie and mm-hmm. uh, have the effect on the culture that he that it has. I think that if you think about those things as a writer, you, you probably kill the process and kill mm-hmm. the material to some extent. Um, that's one of the reasons, honestly, that I've, I I don't mind not being on TV anymore. The, <laughs> the idea when you when you're forced to look at yourself from a bird's eye view, as it would be if you were writing Moneyball and thinking, "Oh my goodness, is this going to um, set off a storm of arguments about between statisticians and co- or scouts?" Mm-hmm. I think that um, the writing would suffer. So I I think that. Being creative requires a certain amount of quiet and contemplation, but not other people, you know, staring at you while you go through it. Yeah, I find it kind of ironic that, you know, the title Moneyball and most of the players in the book and and in your book, in turn, didn't end up making a lot of money while they were playing baseball. Well, yeah. So out of the 21 that I followed, um, you have Nick Swisher making $98 million and Mark Tien making... I don't know, 28, something like that. Mm-hmm. And Joe Blanton is still out there making money. So there are some people who did just fine. But for the ma- the majority, I think, represent the, the national uh, average, which is 6% of the people who are drafted for baseball make it to the major leagues. And mm-hmm. that's really what my book is about. It's about the idea that, that – we're all, as Americans, brought up to believe that we can be the one who beats the odds. And we're about having dreams right up until the point where they're just decimated because it's illogical to think you're going to be the guy who becomes Derek Jeter. But you look at Derek Jeter and you have to believe that you're going to be that guy because otherwise you're definitely not going to make it. So it's this total catch-22 that these athletes are put in, and I don't think we think about that very often. And I think that when they get drafted, they think, oh, my goodness, you know, we're the winners. I'm here. I'm on my way. When every single night, even in the major leagues, as I'm sure you know, it's an audition to get in the lineup for the next night. I'm sure there are, you know, superstars. I'm sure Derek Jeter didn't feel the pressure to be auditioning every single night. But most of the guys are that way. And and a lot of times, like with John Baker or... Martian definitely. They were on teams for a day here, 10 days there, one spring training here. And I just don't, I mean, maybe this is naive, but I just don't understand how you can uh, feel any sort of collaboration or working for the greater good or thinking of something larger than just yourself under those circumstances. I don't know how you mm-hmm. play well 
when you're in the dugout with a whole bunch of people you you don't know and you've just flown in you know i've yeah. had i i can't tell you the number of pictures i have of trucks just sitting in a parking lot somewhere <laughs> where the guy had to just leave everything behind and jump on a plane and go get a new uniform and play for a new team the next night and then his wife had to fly in and drive but they all have trucks obviously yeah. <laughs> um, drive the truck to uh, you know, wherever he had been sent. It's not that unlike the military, quite honestly. Mm. The um, the most famous of the group that, that you photographed, you're talking about the A's class, is is obviously Nick Swisher. I got to know him pretty well during his time with the Yankees. Uh, he, it seems to me that he's more like the rock star that you covered in the first part of your career, isn't he? Yes, he's definitely very photogenic. He is very uh, public relations savvy. But I don't say that in a way that's implying that he's phony. Mm-hmm. I, I, he really, I mean, we could all learn a lot from him, honestly, in terms of how to approach life. He is a very good example of somebody who, you know, was sort of learned in his childhood because of his father being a major league player that this is all possible. I mean, he, he, grew up thinking this is where he's going to be and he played as long as he could i think he's also a very because of his knees giving out i feel like he's a very good example of this existential crisis that we're all we all sort of shove away in that we are both living and dying at the same time so you know, is it his fault that he signed this big contract with the Indians and basically took all their payroll away from mm. all these other guys and immediately ended up on the disabled list? No, you know, like it's just about all of us degrading and aging and it's something that you can't stop no matter how professional, no matter how in shape, no matter how many trainers, it's inevitable. And I think that is something that most human beings and especially Americans don't like to think about. But I I feel like he's a very good example of that. And now, you know, he's got plenty of options open. I don't think anybody feels yeah. badly for Nick Swisher. Um, but what I like about him is how optimistic he really is. I mean, it's as he wrote in my book, it's always sunny in my world. Yeah. And of course, that's an exaggeration, but his personality is basic. He is basically built like that, yeah. and um, and I'm not. So I I always enjoyed my time with him because I have more much more of a dark side than he does, and mm-hmm. and it's nice to be around somebody that abulian. And he, you know, he had kind of no shame. It was like, you want to go, you know, in the shower. You want to uh, let me? Yeah, you want to take my picture? No problem. Let me just do some push-ups first because I'd like my muscles to pop. You know, he just doesn't. He didn't care. He wasn't. He. It was like, you know, this is what people do, and I'm doing it, and I want to look my best. And um, he was just game for anything. And and you know, there were obviously 40 people who I could have been shooting all these years. 21 was plenty, but the way that I ended up picking them is who was most comfortable in front of the camera because you know I didn't want to torture anybody by forcing them to have their picture taken so Nick was definitely my my subject who was most comfortable in front of the camera but I did feel like um, people I did feel like the book could my book fantasy life could be seen as the story of people who you know didn't make it so i really wanted to make sure that the success stories were in there too and you know nick and mark tian and joe blanton provided that but so did me taking 
10 types of people like Derek Jeter and including them in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some pictures of people who aren't part of the um, the A's uh, draft class. There's some shot. There's a shot of Cliff Lee. Uh, there's one of Derek Jeter after his final game at Yankee Stadium with the uh, the Gatorade bucket right. being dumped on him. Tell me, you know, those are not the same types of pictures that the other ones were talking about. Can you tell us a little about how you arrived at those and why they appeared in the book? Sure. So tin types are a old photographic process where you paint emulsion onto a piece of metal. In this case, it's 8 inches by 10 inches. I put it in the back of one of those huge cameras that you see Ansel Adams in historic photos using where you put the black tarp over your head so you can see into the viewfinder. And it doesn't make a negative. It makes a positive. So you, you can only have one of them. They're each one of a kind. And that process came into the world seven years before the first baseball contest. Hmm. So I was looking for a way to take action shots that hadn't been seen before. I'm, I was surrounded during this project with super talented sports photographers like Brad Mangan and Michael Zagaris, and I really just wanted to have some pictures that looked like mine. And because the sports photographers, as you well know, are put in the same two wells, photo wells, at mm -hmm. each game for safety, and to stay out of the player's way, all the pictures, no matter what lens you use, basically look the same. So tintypes were a way for me to differentiate myself and make them sort of look as poignant as the rest of the book. They're brown and amber, and they, they vary in, in color, but they're pretty dark. And they're a beautiful object, but reproduced in the book, they look pretty good, too. So Derek Jeter, he's the guy that all of them assume that they are going to be yeah, at the yeah. beginning of this baseball journey. And um, the tintypes themselves as objects are just these once one shot, you know, they're, they're, they rarely come out well. And so I felt like they paralleled the chances that these guys had to make it to the show. And as you were describing to me earlier, um, some of these are, uh, some of those shots are just taken right off the TV screen. Right. So I watched a lot of documentaries trying to educate myself about baseball because I, I, you know, rarely, I did not know left field from right field. <laughs> um, so I, I saw these people, these heroes that my dad had taught me about when I was younger, like Sandy Koufax and um, just some of the older players. And I wanted them to be part of it. And I felt like the... the Photographs for baseball are so linked to the sport because of the baseball card mm -hmm. that I really wanted to have a little bit, not too much, but a little bit of the old uh, vintage players, the Dodgers. And I have 1974 Dodgers and A's with you know them in their cool socks. Hmm. And uh, I, I just wanted some of the 70s baseball in there. So the way to do that was to take their picture off of a TV screen. And I use the same giant camera, same emulsion process, and they look like tintypes. But you, you can kind of tell, if you look super closely, you can see the lines of the TV screens mm. in the ones that I wasn't right next to them taking. Okay. And it allowed me to get as close to them as, you know, much closer than I would have by myself. In the minor leagues, I was basically in the dugout with the players most of the time. Yeah. That was no problem. Those pictures are very intimate and very up close. But the major league games, you know, I would I would have interrupted the game or been in the shot or, you know, there's just so many more rules, so much more advertising to, to keep out of the shot and – um 
I was in the dugout with them once in a while. Like there's a shot in the book of just the Cleveland Indians dugout uh, with tobacco wadded up inside chewed bubblegum mm-hmm. pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so disgusting. <laughs> but blown up, it's beautiful. So there's this, you know, sort of ugly beauty thing that happens. I had no idea that inside bubblegum was tobacco often. <laughs> and on the on the Cleveland Indians dugout floor, there was all this shiny blue color as I'm looking through the lens. And I all around the bubblegum pieces with the tobacco shards sticking out. And, and I thought, you know, as I'm shooting them through the viewfinder, I was like, well, did it rain? Did they empty out the water jug? What is all this stuff? Okay, well, I'll just keep shooting because it's blue and it looks great next to the pink bubble gum. And then when I put the camera down and look closer, I realize, oh, my God, all that shininess is just spit. It's not water. <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. But the picture turned out great. Are, are there certain emotions that you try to capture when you're shooting these guys, or do you just shoot what you see and then and look for something later? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think at the beginning, I was shooting. I was just shooting. I was just trying to get as much material as possible. Toward the end, you start looking at the work that you have and thinking, okay, what am I missing? So in my case, what I found is I had a lot of bored baseball players a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. They're just bored in the dugout, you know. I, I needed like elation and temper tantrums and <laughs> you know when they come in the dugout and they throw the the baseball helmet toward me instead of jumping out of the way I needed to stand there and get that shot so I think I got more aggressive and less timid as time went on also at that point I had known the players for you know 10 years or whatever mm-hmm. so I knew they weren't going to throw the helmet right at me but I needed some of that intense emotion so I just learned to you know if I if I couldn't get there for the whole game I would just I wouldn't mind missing the beginning because that's when they look most bored Mm. Um, or in the season I would come toward the end of the season instead of at the beginning because that's when they've got more on the line or they're in the playoffs or the you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so there there isn't this sustained level of excitement and they certainly did not play up for the camera ever so um, those are the kinds of things I ended up thinking about. But it wasn't it wasn't so much trying to take a picture of them that proves some point that I had. They they just did that naturally. I think manifest destiny, that idea from the mid nineteenth century that Americans, you know, were given this plot of land and and you could just sort of have this irresistible desire to accomplish and that we we feel like destined to to make a place for ourselves in history and just as you know as special people and i feel like the whole pro baseball uh organization the whole league just set itself up in those terms so that was very easy for me to try to I just used it as a metaphor for chasing the American dream. I'm I'm curious as you finish this project, and you know, you mentioned Joe Blanton who's still going, but do you end up kind of feeling sorry for anybody, or is is everybody in their own way a success story because they they tried? I mean, they did they they went to the highest level they could go. It just wasn't what they dreamed of, but they succeeded in some form or fashion because they they took 
they went as far as their talents could take them. Is that kind of what you saw? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you got it. That's they're, These are the people who are striving for greatness. And if you dare to do that, you have my admiration. So I didn't think of them ever like failures. Mm-hmm. I saw them struggle, and I wanted them to do well, and I was always rooting for them. Uh, no matter what team they were on, if they were on the, you know, they all got traded. So there's Marlins and there's Dodgers in the book and there are Giants in the book. And um, it's not just the A's by a long shot. So I felt like these people put a lot on the line. They, it was, a, you know, it's, the minor league life is is a very difficult one. Constant motion, cheap hotel rooms, um, a ton of games. And I think that they gave up a lot of family security. Uh, Jeremy Brown, for example, he was the only one of the 21 who voluntarily uh, retired. He wanted to, he decided his personal happiness was more important than his baseball career, and he wanted to go back to Hueytown where he felt most comfortable. Um, so I think that he's a good example of somebody deciding as they went on, like, hmm, maybe this isn't all I thought it was going to be, and maybe I want to do something else. And if, you know, he's still involved in baseball and it went back to college and got his teaching certificate. And um, what I also admire, which I think is very American, is the resilience that these people have had to have. If you have decided when you're in Little League that you're going to be a Major League Baseball player, which and so many of them do, because it doesn't take the extraordinary height of basketball or an extraordinary girth of football to do it. You can just be like an average-looking guy and aspire to this thing. I think that it's very hard to look in the mirror and when you're 27 and see something besides baseball player and it's not like let's say I went to college and just studied pre-med and then I got out of college as a 21 year old or 22 year old and said you know actually I want to go to law school instead that kind of shift is about education about um, preparation it's about a passion for a subject but it's not your identity so these guys I mean, I have kindergarten baseball cards from some of them that have their height and weight hmm. and what team they want to play on. I have pictures of Joe Blanton as an Oakland A Little League and as an Oakland A you know, Major League player. Same for uh, Mark Tian, a Kansas City Royal Little League picture in the book, plus him as a Major League Kansas City Royal. So these things are so ingrained at such an early age. One of my players wrote... Ten of them are in the book, and they all wrote essays Mm -hmm. that are about 500, 600 words, and they're so poignant. And one of my players, Chris Shank, his dad, when he was a baby, put a baseball in the left side of his crib (laughs) so that he would grow up to be a left-handed pitcher. And it didn't work. He grew up to be a right-handed pitcher. (laughs) But nonetheless, um, I think that is typical of the way that they are – thinking about themselves. And I think, you know, changing out of that and going back to school and, you know, becoming an insurance salesman or a coal miner or um, a lot of them became coaches. So Ben Ben Fritz is a coach for the Padres and Lloyd Turner is a coach for the A's and John Baker works for the Cubs. I think he's their quote-unquote mental coach. Um, I think that it's a 
I really admire their resilience in figuring out what they're going to do next. Because as you know, I mean, they retire. And what are they, like 28 yeah, years old, yeah. 29 years old? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculously young. They all have a shot at doing something else. But, you know, some of them had a harder time than others. One of my guys afterwards, he had blown all his money on, you know, big cars and uh, alcohol and probably drugs, ended up homeless afterwards. Mm. He he really had no plan B. The book's called Fantasy Life, Baseball and the American Dream from Aperture, uh, photographs by Tabitha Soren. I want to ask you about this. In, in your thank yous, you wrote, you thanked uh, all the 2002 draftees that you followed uh, for, quote, for teaching me about baseball. Uh, have you become a different sort of baseball fan, uh, you know, it, since you started this project to where you are now? You know, I told you that story about Davy Lope. Yeah. So I had baseball as part of my life because my dad was this diehard Red Sox fan. And so the Yankees were evil <laughs> and um, the Red Sox were underdogs. And so I think that that it was really an important lesson for me about character. It was about rooting for the underdogs. It was about people who, you know, you needed to give a second chance to. And I think that as a human being, that's a great lesson to learn. However, I wasn't really paying attention to the rules of the game or um, or what went on. So honestly, when I went to shoot them in the beginning. It was. I would ask them to do things that just were never part of the game, that would yeah. never work. Um, like, I was shooting Steve Stanley bunting, because that was his specialty. And I was on the mound, and he was at the plate, and he was just showing, Michael, I think, was probably throwing to him. And he was showing me, you know, what a bunt looked like, and I wanted to get a really close-up picture of it, rather than standing in a place that I would for a regular game. And so he bunted, and I shot him running to first base behind me and then I said okay now let's do it the other way and he said what do you mean I said run the other direction he's like run to third I thought I didn't think of it that way I was just thinking about the light and how it was hitting his face and what was going to be different so you know there were tons of little things like that that kind of made the players laugh I I never managed to call um when I tell them to get changed into something else, I would inevitably call it their outfit. Like, it's not an outfit. It's a uniform. You know, they're all so serious. And their caps were always casting shadows on their forehead. So I try to get them to put their caps further back on their head. That drove them crazy. Um, drop third strikes. You know, that took me years to figure out what the heck is, why do you get on base? <laughs> and then this was the clincher. I, you know, as I said, I was always trying to get the end of the game and, and show some real emotion at the end of the game because so much of their lives in the dugout looks boring. I mean, it's because they're tense. It's because they're concentrating. But in a photograph, it's just them looking really po-faced and yeah. stern. You yeah. can only have so many of that yeah. in a book. And so at the end of the game, I was always trying to get them, you know, really elated. And I would set up for the second half of the ninth inning, all ready to go. And then I'd look around and <laughs> say, hey, where did everybody go? <laughs> and, of course, they weren't playing the second half of the ninth inning because they didn't need to because they were so far ahead. Yeah. So I didn't get the wah shot. <laughs> so when I say thank you for teaching me about baseball, it's literal. <laughs> it's not a metaphor for something else. Um, it's the actual way the game is played. And so, you know, 15 years into this, I know a little bit, plus all my kids now play softball in Little League and 
so um, I know more than most parents, but I certainly didn't when I started Fantasy Life. That's fantastic. Listen, I want to finish this by asking you about something. I want to go back in time a little bit. If you go back 25 years um, where you were in your TV news career, TV news was a lot different. It was the big three networks and CNN still, and the landscape now is completely different. Uh, MTV News back then, uh, right before the you know before the election of '92 and all that, it used to be things like you know when's the new Bon Jovi album coming out and when do Madonna tickets go on sale. I, I, I'm curious at how you were received, how you felt you were received when MTV News jumps into the election coverage and you're scoring these major interviews with Bill Clinton and all these other personalities. And what you're doing is crossing over into the quote-unquote mainstream media. How were you received in that group, in that atmosphere? Well, people didn't know this, but I had come from local news in Vermont where I had done the, covered the gubernatorial race there. And then before that, I worked for Gabe Pressman at WNBC mm-hmm. and covered the Koch-Dinkins race in New York. I went to college in New York City. Yeah. So in my mind, I belonged there because I had gone from local politics to state politics, and now this was national politics. That said, I'm coming to New Hampshire and interviewing Clinton from MTV. So the other reporters raised an eyebrow for sure. But after they saw my work, if they took the time to actually see what we were doing, they, they, it made sense. It's like, okay, so this 18 to 24-year-old voting block watches you guys anyway. Of course you're going to try to educate them about the difference between a primary and a caucus or, you know, what this person wants to do for college loans versus this candidate. So it, it took maybe six weeks or so, mm-hmm. but as soon as the New York Times wrote an article about what I was doing and, and what the work looked like, um, you know, the, it – the resistance went away, and the candidates were keen on it from the get-go because they were all trying to court young voters at that time, if you recall. Mm-hmm. You know, Clinton went on Arsenio Hall, and yeah. um, they were really – I mean, besides George Bush, they were courting young hmm. voters. And even he, you know, acquiesced to an interview by – I think it was October. I think I right before the oh. November 6th election, wow. uh, he put me on the back of a train, and we – we talked about politics for, I think, nine and a half minutes. But I, I think that if I had thought that there was going to be resistance, it would have interfered with me, the work that I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I was, you know, probably also I was, I was young and developing my skills. And as I mentioned before, if you start thinking about what other people think, it makes your job that much harder. Yeah. So I think just as a, um, as what is the word I'm looking for? You know, as a self-protective measure, it wasn't my instinct to start worrying about that. I would say that later on, not at the beginning, but later on when I, when President Bill Clinton was no longer a candidate and I was uh, interviewing him in the Oval Office, yeah. and every single word I said was being transcribed by the White House press corps Mm -hmm. and handed out and distributed to all these reporters I had grown up watching and admired, that made me incredibly nervous because Mm -hmm. every um, every you know, every verbal tick, everything I said, they were handed on a sheet of paper when Mm -hmm. I was done to be analyzed and scrutinized. And that that was nerve-wracking. So I, I deliberately tried not to think about that. 
because it certainly didn't happen when they did an interview, but I kept getting all these one-on-ones there, so of course they should, I would have to share the information. So once I broke news a couple of times, then, then I felt more secure even in that realm. But again, the scrutiny is, is not easy to deal with. That somebody, you know, somebody who's dealt with it as gracefully as Derek Jeter is really to be admired. Mm-hmm. Although I do remember doing a story on MTV News about him dating Mariah Carey yeah. for a hot minute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you remember that? I, I I remember it very well. It's uh, he's yeah. he he's the crossover. He goes from sports to uh, pop culture very easily because of things <laughs> like that. I remember I was a little bit friends with Mariah, and she said, "Yeah, he's just too young for me." <laughs> I thought, "Wow." Um, <laughs> listen, uh, besides buying the book, people can go see your work at some exhibits, correct? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're on the West Coast near San Francisco, starting in July, basically every single picture in the book and then some will be exhibited at San Francisco City Hall starting July 20th, and it stays up through the rest of the year. So really, you have six months to see all the work in person, and certainly the scale of a four-foot by six-foot image is a lot more powerful than something you would see in a book. The, the book has a different experience because it has so much memorabilia from the players and the essays from the players themselves, but I'm really excited about the exhibit at City Hall. And the other thing you can see if you're in New York City, which I suppose most of your viewers are. Um, at Aperture in Chelsea, the Aperture Gallery has two Derek Jeter tintypes. So if you want to see what we were talking about earlier and how the, the metal photograph, what it actually looks like, um, they're pretty stunning and I th- think it's worth dropping by. And You don't have to pay or anything. It's totally free. You can go look at them. Tabitha, listen, I want to thank you for all the time um, and uh, good luck. I know the book's oh, already it's out. It's a lot of fun talking to you. It's nice to feel like I have a tiny connection back to New York. I still think of it as my hometown, even though I moved all over the world. It's the place I lived longest, and uh, even when I land there now on an airplane, my friends who still live there text me and they say, welcome home. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Maybe we'll uh, we'll get a chance to catch up to you the next time you land back home, and uh, thanks and good luck for that. That would be great. Thank you so much. And there you go. That's a name that if you're like me, you probably remember from MTV, and you said to yourself at some point, hmm, I wonder whatever happened to Tabitha Soren. Well, now you know. Hopefully you can check out her book or her exhibit or both. Please come back next time when I chat with Adam Curry's hair. Uh, That's all for now. Check out past episodes if you missed them. They're easy to find at WFAN.com, play.it, and even easier on iTunes where you can simply subscribe for free and get them delivered to your phone. Please go back and check out my feature on Mickey Mantle's 500th home run. Uh, I'll have another moment to look back on coming up, and I'll give you details about that soon. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at YankeesWFAN, on Instagram at Sweeney underscore Murdy, S-W-E-E-N-Y underscore M-U-R-T-I, and you can find all my articles, podcast pictures, and all the other goodies on the Sweeney Murdy Facebook page. As always, thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.